0: Thank you, Deacon Chusan, for leading us. Allow me uh, to pray for myself. Father, grant me courage and clarity to speak your truth. And may the Spirit of God convict us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm glad to be back again and uh, to give you the Lord's word. You know, it's been more than two years since the first COVID case was reported. Do you remember when was it? I think it was 23rd January 2020. And a lot of things have happened. And uh, in fact, for myself, uh, little did I know that I would be uh, infected with COVID, so I'm a COVID uh, survivor. But don't worry, I'm okay. Yeah. And it's almost... Two years about it. And one of the things that I have for myself understand about the way itself, about for ourselves as Joe and our Christian itself, I didn't think there's so many itself. So many storm, as faithful, and as committed as we had imagined it all. We don't understand why. And I don't know why itself. So for so many years itself, even now, we have been thinking about it. And one of the reasons why we have think together as Christians is because I think that we have been discipled down or low about it in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Without our Christian, our discipleship is gone or down about it. In fact, do you know that the New uh, Testament, the word disciple occurs 269 times and only the word Christian is, uh, occurs three times. And why? You see, I think that this pandemic itself has revealed, has exp- telling about itself about how they have either n- some about their discipleship or nothing at all. It's almost like thinking about a a building itself without a a foundation itself. From the outside, it looks like a building, but internally, the foundation is no longer there at all, and it wouldn't take much for it to uh, collapse itself. You know, what I fear for many of us for the last two years, as for myself, is that we have been raised and taught about our Christian faith and experience without discipleship. And maybe, maybe we assume that in the process of discipleship, but actually, in reality, we are not at all. Give you an example. Especially in our church in Adam Road, when we talk about discipleship group. A Bible study is not a discipleship. Fellowship is not discipleship. Even serving is not discipleship. They are parts of the process of discipleship, but you can have these activities to be done without relating or connecting to discipleship. And I think that's the problem for many Christians, that somehow that our relationship or our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ does not have the idea of discipleship as how the Word of God tells us. And so for the last two months, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark. And one of the main themes of this Gospel is about discipleship. And in Mark 8, we see a significant event that will cause Jesus to now focus his attention on his disciples, that Peter says that Jesus is the Christ. And so I think it is so critical for all of us to listen to the Bible passage and to see what is the Lord speaking to us. There is one message or one thing that I want to tell you about today's um, message itself, and that is a true disciple sees clearly, knows conclusively, and follow Christ resolutely. The main point of this message is that a true disciple sees clearly, knows conclusively, and follows the Lord Jesus Christ resolutely. That is the point itself, as a, tr- as a true disciple. And so the passage was, is going to be arranged by the author Mark to teach us in these three things about discipleship. So there are three things. The first one is, seeing is not enough. A true disciple needs to see clearly. Seeing is not enough. A true disciple needs to see clearly. The second one is, having the right confession is not good enough. A true disciple needs to arrive the right conclusion. Having the right confession is not enough. A true disciple needs to arrive to the right conclusion. And the last one, desiring is not good enough. Desiring is not good enough. A true disciple needs to follow Jesus, even if it means suffering and death. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 22-26. If you have a physical Bible, You know, some of my colleagues said I'm old-fashioned. And if not, use your digital uh, uh, Bible. Chapter 8, verse 22-26. Here we have an interesting incident itself. This is the first hearing narrative of a blind man. And um, the writer, Mark, is going to bring this to a very important lesson about it. He's going to use this narrative to illustrate the blindness of the disciple. And I think there's a lot for us to learn here. So what happened is that this man is blind. Verse 22. Some brought to a man a blind man and and begged him to touch. And he took the blind man by the hand and led them out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Now, this man is blind. We are not too sure whether he was born blind or that he was able to see that along the way, he lost his vision itself. But the idea here is that he is blind entirely. And he needs someone to help him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for us, we all know that even though a person may be, let's say, born as a blind person, the person knows in its life, his or her life, that he was meant to see. Even the person who was born blind, has not even seen anything, knows innately within itself that being able to see is an important part, something they're not able to do, but they know about it. And so here, this particular incident, Jesus heals this man. And what is so particular is that this man, or rather, Jesus heals this man on two stages. If you read carefully, you will see that how Jesus begins to say this, Do you see anything? And the man's reply is, And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Now why is this? Why is it that the Lord Jesus Christ allowed the first stage itself? And there are many things that I think are important for us as disciples and for us in the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples, actually in in the Gospel of Mark, have been privileged of knowing many things, observing what Jesus has been doing. Some things are in the public, some things are in the private. And they also have been hearing and learning many things about the Lord Jesus Christ, has been, te- been teaching Him, teaching them in the public and also in the private. And one of the important things is in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, God, Jesus Himself said, I will give you the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to you. And so the disciples know. They have been privileged disciples. But yet, this particular narrative tells us something. For us. And the first thing is that even though if we know Jesus Christ, or even though the disciples know Jesus, it doesn't mean they know him well. They know him clearly. Now, the first point here that this incident tells us is that there is a blindness problem. Now, this is obviously a physical blind issue, but the writer Mark is trying to, to, is helping us to understand that the disciples also are blind. And the blindness is a spiritual blindness. You see, for us, for us, all of us, we need to begin by admitting that you and I are spiritually blind. You and I are not able to see. But unlike a physical blindness whereby you are conscious and aware about it, the dangerous part of our spiritual blindness is you can be blind without knowing that you are blind. So a true disciple, he's aware about it, You and I are aware and we admit, Lord, I am blind. I can't see. I need someone to help me. And that is what this man has. Friends who have brought him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if the Lord Jesus had healed him, stage one, and he was able to see, yet you and I know the way he described what he saw tells us he didn't see everything. He could only describe, he saw something, he saw people, and the only thing he could describe was that they looked like trees walking. And that's a very important lesson for us too, which will be revealed in the next part. Is that just because you and I know a bit, or uh, just to know some things about the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that we know everything, or we know enough, or well. That, to me, is a very important part here in this particular short passage. That the man is not able to see clearly and he knows it. And he didn't say, hallelujah, thank God, Okay, let me go and continue my life itself. No, he knew and he stayed, remained there because there is something still amiss. Let me ask you, if you are not growing in your understanding and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Chances are, you are like that blind man who was healed on stage one, and you are just happy with what you know, and you think that that's all that you know is everything there is, and that to me is dangerous. Yes, we may be able to see things about Jesus that is true, that is factual, but yet it is not enough for us. Because the knowledge that we ought to derive from Scriptures ought to move us towards a devoted relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as disciple. And so that's why it is frightening for us as Christians, or for those Christians you might even know, maybe for ourselves even here, that we are satisfied, we are happy with what we know about Jesus and we don't need to know anymore, then we are like that blind man being healed stage one. Yes, your eyes can see but you can't see clearly. And so the way a true disciple needs is that he can't just see, he needs to see clearly. The point of a true disciple is to see clearly and that's exactly what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ, verse 25, The Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again and opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. A true disciple of Jesus sees everything clearly. Now what do I mean by everything clearly here? In Mark's gospel, the focus will be he sees Jesus clearly. You see, until you see Jesus clearly, you can't call yourself a true disciple. And so it is important is, there, is, is it possible that for some of us here, for those who are not committed, or who have not committed ourselves to be a Christian, that, that there is that partial knowledge or the things that we know a little bit is not enough for us? And that's why we need to know more. We need to see even more clearly. And for some of us here who have been Christians for years, is, that the, is there a reason why we have not committed ourselves to be a true devoted disciple? It's because we have not seen clearly itself if we have not seen clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves this question. Because if you are not a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, this incident tells us that maybe we don't see clearly. You know, one of the closest um, experience for me about uh, eyesight was when my father, who has really passed away, was suffering from glaucoma. Glaucoma is basically, there is a... Eye condition and for him, the pressure was so high in the eyeball that it was damaging his optic nerve. And so, what happens is that he's not able to see as clearly and as well. But, how do we know about this is that he started falling down, tripping easily, and we didn't know why. We thought it was his glasses, so he was around 70 over years old, so we kept changing his glasses, but he kept falling down. And finally, we realized that he needed to go and see an eye doctor, and that's where we discovered he had a glaucoma. And that was where two things I learned about the that our eyes, is that one, is that when you have a damaged eye, uh, when your optic nerve is damaged, it's irreversible. That to me was scary. That means that by the time um, my, before my father passed away, his vision, he had lost 80, almost 80% of vision. Only 20% was left and nothing he could do to regain back the vision. That to me was scary. The damage was permanent. But the second thing to me was quite fascinating, and I think has a lot to apply to us today, is that the brain and the optic nerve is fascinating. Even though my father had lost his vision up to 80 percent, uh, and there was only 20 percent, but the brain knows how to compensate, compensate and learn how to draw a certain image around what we see so that we don't just see only 20 percent, but actually that's all we see. So even though my father can't see a lot of things from his peripheral vision, but the brain thinks, knows how to compensate and pretends to build an image in his mind that he thinks he's seeing everything. That's why he doesn't feel so frightened when he, when he knows he only has 20% vision. So do you get it? Only 20% of what my father sees is of reality. The rest, the brain, knows how to compensate and brings out an image that may not be true in reality so that he thinks he can see. And that's the problem for us when we don't know that we are spiritually blind and what we see we think that's all there is and so because we think we are not spiritually blind we don't do anything about it to resolve that blindness the second thing is that when we think that what we see is enough that's it and we are happy just like the man saw the man walking as trees we think that that's all about it about christianity or about what it means to follow the lord jesus christ And that is why it is so important for you and I to pursue, to know that we cannot just see, we need to see clearly because that is what a true disciple is. The next one is about having the right confession is not good enough because a true disciple needs to arrive to the right conclusion. If you look at verse 27, as Jesus was walking towards with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, he initiated by asking his disciples, who do the crowd think I am? Which could even include the religious leaders themselves. And then the disciples who had been among the people told Jesus, you know what, they think that you are John the Baptist. Some say even Elijah, or one of the prophets. Now, do you realize that their conclusion is not really wrong? Right? Because the way Jesus had been demonstrating his power, his miracles, his signs, and the way he taught the people, confronted the religious leaders, they all saw that he is a servant of God. So if you were to look at their conclusion, that he's either John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, their conclusion is not wrong. Right? You and I will agree, not wrong. But you know what? They are also not right too. They thought that that's all that he is. But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than John the Baptist, greater than Elijah, greater than a prophet, which we will see in next chapter whereby he is not a servant, he is the Son. But what was important is that now Jesus directs the question to the disciples, how about you? Do you have the same conclusion as the crowds or do you see something else? And most wonderfully, we see the watershed point of the Gospel of Mark, whereby Peter himself confessed, You are the Christ. There's this man called Oswald Chambers. Some of the older ones might know that he is the man famous for writing a book called Utmost for His Highest. And Os- Oswald Chambers once said that the whole of humanity, whole of humanity, depends on a man's relationship. With Jesus, how he answers the question, Who am I to you? Basically, who is Jesus to you? Same question. Every single one of us here have to answer that question Who is Jesus to us? That is the most important question that you need to know and you need to answer. Every single one, whether you are a believer or you're not a believer. It is a question that everyone needs to ask. Now, one of the privilege I have is that I am able to lead uh, one of the class called "Discovering Christianity," which is a four weeks class where my it's an opportunity for those who have not committed their faith in Christ but would like to ask want to know more and ask questions. This is the opportunity for them. And one of the classes we will ask about who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that usually I will talk about how. When you when I've shared with them what Jesus has done in the gospel and what he has said about himself and what the disciples have said about him, I will say that usually you have to come to three conclusions. Either the Lord Jesus Christ is a lunatic, that means a crazy person, because he's been saying things that only a crazy person would say, or he is a liar. That means even though he has said many things big things he's saying, he can do all these things, but he actually can't say because words are cheap. What's well, the third one? He's truly Lord. I got this because when I was reading about C.S. Lewis, he says this, <clears throat> I'm, I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. That's what people say in Lewis' day. But I don't accept his claim as God. Actually, even today, people still say that. That is one of the things we must not say, Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poach egg, Okay, that means his brain is a poach egg, he can't think clearly, or else he would be the devil of hell, like a liar. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now that's what exactly happened to the crowd. They couldn't make the conclusion that Jesus was the son of God. thought everything else in between how about you are you able to make that same confession as what peter made that he is the christ now for peter a jew a first century jew when he says christ which is greek meaning anointed or messiah in hebrew it means a lot in those days when peter says this it means that he recognizes that jesus is the promised king who was promised in the Old Testament that will come to conquer the enemies in glory and power and honor and defeat everyone and begin a new glory and era of the kingdom of God itself. That's what he thought and that's what he saw in Jesus. And is he right? Absolutely. But is he also wrong? Absolutely, too. How come? How do we know that he is wrong? Because we see how Jesus responded to him when he rebuked him in verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, verse 33, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men." What happened here? You see, the people identified Jesus as being a prophet, which was the common idea. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, they were right, and yet they were wrong. And Peter here, the disciple, one who represents all the other disciples, who saw everything, now confess that Jesus is the Christ. He is right, but he is also wrong. How can he be wrong? He's wrong because his understanding of Jesus, his understanding of following Christ does not entail suffering, does not entail rejection, does not entail death. That is the problem here. Is it possible that here, right at this moment, that your understanding of Jesus Your understanding of Christianity could be right and yet, at the same time, so wrong. And the one thing that makes the difference, that how it becomes wrong, is when your understanding, your definition of Christianity and of Jesus Christ has nothing but only blessing only glory only joy only happiness only wealth only health only answered prayers of all that you wanted of your desires no suffering no defeat no weaknesses no failures no disappointments no pain no tears If your definition of Christianity and of the Lord Jesus Christ is without suffering and death, then you are wrong. Then you are not a true disciple who sees clearly. It's not enough just to have the right confession. We need to arrive to the right conclusion. And the conclusion is, Christianity and following after Jesus Requires us to suffer and die. And so that's why, when we have been taught, either when we are very young or even right now, of our Christian faith that does not include suffering, death, pain, tears itself, and when we encounter suffering in our reality, what happens? we are crushed, we are shocked, we are surprised because we thought it would never happen to us. But the truth is, true Christian faith, true Christian understanding, a true disciple of Jesus anticipates and expects suffering and will not be surprised. So does your theology of Christian faith have a category of suffering? And the only way that you will know is when you go through suffering itself. Then you will really know whether what you really believe is true. And this is the problem because if you look verse down in verse 33, the problem is that in the human realm, we don't like suffering. We don't want suffering. Jesus says, "'Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of men. The things of men will do everything to avoid and to resolve suffering and not embrace suffering. Everything that we do is to avoid or to resolve suffering. In fact, if you were to trace human civilization, how we are advancing from history itself, one of the things, the threat that we can see, is that human civilization is growing and moving towards a direction of reducing suffering or to make things less painful itself. And how we do that is that we use technology. Technology to great comfort, to great ease, less trouble, less pain, less difficulty, everything. Best of all, we can see this technology is being used in the medical uh, 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 industry itself. And it's not that it is wrong. It's not wrong thing. But at least we know the whole of human civilization is conscious and aware that we don't want suffering. We want to avoid suffering. And I will do anything and everything I can to avoid, if possible. And that is the kind of world that we are living in that tells you, don't embrace suffering. Reject it. Go away. Run as far as you can from suffering itself. Whereas here, the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that He will suffer, he will be rejected, he will die on the cross. So let me ask you right now, think and evaluate. In your understanding of Jesus and Christianity, is suffering part of that understanding? Is suffering part of the understanding of your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you prepared to suffer and to die? Because if you are not, if you are still thinking about the things of men, what will happen is that when suffering comes, you will protest exactly as how Peter protested, Because in his understanding of Jesus and of following Jesus, there is no suffering, and he will protest. Lord, fire be from you. No, it cannot be. This is not from the Lord. The God cannot allow me to suffer. I will not suffer. I cannot be going through this pain or loss itself. That is the problem, because we are thinking the things of men. There are many things about the things of men. Sadly, to say, the things of men is about self, basically, and that's what the evil one too is encouraging to focus on self self-interest, self-preservation, self-praise, self-glory, self-centred, self-made. It's all about me. And that's why suffering is totally not in my definition of self at all. But here, a true disciple will understand in humility and brokenness that suffering can be and is a part of God's plan. Because just as there is no such thing as Christianity without suffering, there is no such thing as being a disciple without suffering. And this was something that Jesus needed to teach his disciples because they didn't know. Verse 31, and he began to teach them. He had to teach them because this was something that they did not expect at all, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected not by people but by the elite the people of all should know but by the elders chief priests and scribes and be killed but the fourth thing that they forgot or did not really understand is that he will be raised again so that's why a true disciple cannot cannot just confess what is right but he must also lead to the he must also arrive to the right conclusion that Christianity and following Christ include suffering. And there comes our last point. Desiring Christ is not enough. A true disciple follows Jesus even if it means suffering and death. A true disciple follows Jesus even if it means suffering and death. In verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me i 'm sure most of us, if not all, were shocked when we heard the news of how Russia invaded ukraine and if you are like me who like to um, uh, was interested in geopolitics and, and war." Um, you will be reading up a lot of stuff, and I've been keeping myself up to date. And one of the things that I was deeply, deeply amazed and inspired was how the Ukrainians were fighting so hard to defend against the aggressor. That, were, that is more powerful, better equipped in greater numbers, and everybody thought they would lose. Everybody thought it would be over within a few days. But the world was shocked. And at the same time, it was also very heartbreaking to see certain anecdotes, certain stories and videos that I came across. And there was one particular one that really broke my heart, whereby the father was saying goodbye to his wife and to his daughter. And they were crying, and the man was crying. And touching the daughter, hugging the last few times, because he knows that he's staying back to fight. He wants to do that. And he doesn't know whether this will be the last time he will see his wife and his daughter as they were ushered into the bus and to leave. And he wanted to remain to fight for the country and for the land, to defend against the aggressor. And I don't know very much about the Ukrainians at all. I don't really know much of the history. It was only this that incident that helped me to find out a bit more. But one thing I know, that they love their country and they love their land, and they will do anything and everything, even pay the ultimate price to defend. And even if it means to suffer, even if it means to lose, even if it means to die, they will do it. This is the commitment and the love that the Ukrainians are showing to the rest of the world that all of us are so encouraged and inspired and we ask ourselves, would we do that too also if we were in their shoes? You see, a true disciple will follow Jesus even if he means suffering and death. Now we know that they are committed to it because they are prepared to suffer and even die. That is a reflection of the commitment of a true Ukrainian. How about a true disciple? A true disciple reflects his or her commitment to Christ regardless of what's going to happen, even if it means to suffer and to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean suffer metaphorically or die metaphorically, Because what Jesus says here, verse 34, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The disciples and the cross knew exactly what he was saying. You need to die. Are you prepared to pay the ultimate price to follow me? You cannot say that you are a true disciple. You cannot say that you are permitted to following Christ if you are not prepared to suffer and die. One of the things when I, when I do NPR with the couples is I always tell the couples that one of the most amazing things when we exchange, when a couple exchange vows for each other, which some of us who are married will know, is that we are making a promise and a commitment to each other that regardless what's going to happen in the future, which none of us know, I will still love you. I will still be there for you. I will still take care of you because I'm committed to you. It doesn't matter what's going to happen in the future. My promise is that I'm going to be committed to you. That is the difference between a marriage relationship that we are sealing legally and spiritually before the Lord as opposed to just a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Same thing here. It's easy for us to say that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ is asking, great, so would you now follow me? Will you follow me even if I bring you to to darkness, to the floods, to the fire, to pain and suffering and even ultimate death. Now look at the verse 34 itself. Even though it's not translated that way, but the word come after me is actually the same word as the word follow me. So in between the word follow me, follow me, are two things that the Lord Jesus Christ tells, if you want to follow me, these are the two things you need to do. Deny yourself. And the word deny yourself basically encapsulates the whole idea of the thoughts of men. The thoughts of men is about self, me, 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 me. But the Lord Jesus Christ says that if you want to follow me, you cannot talk about yourself because it's no longer about me, me, me. It's about now I, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot follow the Lord Jesus Christ if you still want to follow yourself. You can only follow one. And that's what it means. You need to deny yourself. Everything, every part of you to deny. And the second thing he talks is take up his cross. Everyone knows what he's talking about because in the Roman, in in the first century, the cross is a symbol of death itself, cruel death, a very shameful, humiliating death. And later, Jesus Christ himself would take up the cross literally. And that's what he's asking for all of us here. The truth is, If the Ukrainians are prepared to suffer and die for their country and for the land, how about us? For an even greater cause, a loftier cause for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we all willing here to suffer and to die for Jesus? Many times people can't see beyond suffering. And I, I struggle with myself when I ask myself this question. How did the disciples overcame this idea of suffering whereby they were being repulsed by it, they were moving to, away from it? And there are two things that I want you to see here, uh, an incentive and a negative incentive. The incentive is, the Lord Jesus explains in verse 35, is that if you do this, you will ultimately save your life. You will ultimately save your life. If you follow Christ and you lose your life for the sake of Him and the gospel, you will ultimately save your life. That's one. Because anything else that you try to do that you think might be saving your life, you will lose it. And that's where he says, verse, the second part, Uh, Second uh, uh, part, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is saying that any other path that you take, you will lose all, even if you think that you are saving your life. This is the only way. So if there's a way for you to be motivated, to be incentivized, is that following Christ, even in suffering and death, you will save your life. But the last thing that people tend to forget is in verse 38. Even though we may suffer, but there will come a day that everything will come to an end. There will be an end point for all of us here. Verse 38. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels... The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us, yes, suffering will come even, and even possibly death, but one day I will return back and I and everything will be back to how it is. And all that you have been hoping for, the glory, the praise, the joy, the blessing, the honour, will all come in fullness when He returns. The suffering that you and I are experiencing will be incomparable to what awaits us when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so that's why for us, as a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you see clearly? Or are you just only seeing? Do you just have the right confession? Or are you arriving to the right conclusion that suffering is part of? following Christ and the last one that we are not just desiring Christ but we are prepared to follow him and even suffering and dying for him that's what it means to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and I hope that you would take time to revisit and to ask yourself am I truly a true disciple and if not why let us pray Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us here to examine our own hearts and our own life and our own beliefs, if indeed we truly hold on to the right things, to the things that are clear to us. We know, Father, that we don't want to suffer. We don't want pain. We don't want to go through this kind of things. But yet we know that the One who loved us so much who gave himself that we might live, went through that kind of suffering and even death, that cruel death that none of us could ever imagine. And so I ask, Lord, may you speak to us and forgive us when we have harbored such inadequate and false and wrong thoughts and notion of what it means to be a follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us not to be afraid, Father, for we have the Lord Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith, Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.